Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Just wanted to send out a quick thank you for all of the love that we received about our 100th episode last week. Here's to 100 more. So excited to still be doing this. Let's get right into this macaroonies. It was a Pretty big week. Every week's a big week, but we saw some pretty great stuff this week. And it kicked off with a mystery movie pick from somebody really special to me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who that is. Yeah. Um, funny that this is the first one we're talking about after you said we watched some really great stuff this week. Because I very intentionally wanted to watch something not very good. But I had so much fun. So I picked the 1995 action drama sci-fi film Johnny Mnemonic. It was directed by Robert Longo and written by William Gibson, as well as based on a short story by him. It stars the always beautiful Keanu Reeves as Johnny Mnemonic, Dina Meyer as Jane, Ice-T as J-Bone, Takeshi Kitano as Takahashi, and Henry Rollins himself as Spider. Synopsis. A data courier literally carrying a data package inside his head must deliver it before he dies from the burden or is killed by the Yakuza. What did you think of Johnny Mnemonic? I was pretty stoked that you picked this because I think, was it, did Metro do a black and white version of it? I think Criterion Channel did. Right. That's what it was. But it, it popped up semi-recently and I knew very little about it. I didn't really know what the tone was. Johnny Mnemonic sounds like a 90s cartoon character, honestly. Everything about this has, I'm in the 90s and think I know what the future is going to be written all over it. Like this was, give me a little bit of reboot, give me a little bit of, bit of I can put my arm back on, but you can't. <laughs> Play <right>? safe. Play <laughs> safe. Give, give me a little bit of really shitty PC video games out of cereal boxes that think their graphics are cool. And we think it too, because we don't know any better. Yeah. Like it's just that 90s cheesy camp from the line delivery. But like you're saying, especially just around... The ideas of the internet. 
Yeah. And what the internet is. Whoa, we're going into the internet. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Graphics, graphics, graphics. Like it was just so 90s cheesy in a way that I, I would be really curious what somebody who didn't live through the 90s would make of it because it did ring a certain nostalgia bell for like the types of graphics we saw then, which were just what the graphics were. So it didn't really evoke the future. Yeah. But somebody who was like born in the two thousands and didn't live through all that shitty tech. I wonder if they'd just be like, this is just straight up bad. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I lived through the nineties and I think it looks straight up bad, but in a (laughs) fun way in just like, in a way that just made this such a such a romp and just like there's so much truly goofy ass shit in this movie. But I had a blast. Like I said, I had so much fun with this movie. And it's funny because this is very much during Keanu Reeves speed era. Yeah. And he's very like his most like the version of Keanu Reeves that gets memed. Well, there's kind of two meme versions of Keanu Reeves. There's the like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And then there's the he's a nice guy. But right. this is the most whoa yeah. version of him where he's just like, I'm pretty sure he was instructed to deliver the lines that stupidly. Well, it's so funny now that you say that, because I kind of think of the arc of Keanu Reeves. And I think he starts with like Bill and Ted, right, where it's very surfer stoner guy. And then I feel like this. He starts to kind of transition out of that. And then once he gets to mid to late 90s, he becomes like action hero kind of like but he's like kind of, of of a dummy and like he doesn't like he doesn't really care it's but a bit that, of an everyman action hero but that's kind of cool by the time we get to neo in like the late 90s it's kind of like okay because like this this feels like very precursor to the matrixy like it has yeah. you could draw some serious lines so the wachowskis used johnny mnemonic as part of their pitch to investors when they were trying to sell the Matrix, Amazing. and they've said that it was an influence on the Matrix, which is and it's supremely better. Yeah, but you can see the threads that they're pulling. There are no dolphins in the Matrix <laughs> that I remember. Um, just to button my thought, though, I feel like where we're at, where we're at with Keanu Reeves now, he says some really beautiful, thoughtful stuff. And I feel like they've come full circle and like still lean into some of the cheese in like line. If you watch the John Wick movies, they give him some really silly one liners, but he's and very stiff line deliveries from him. But on purpose, I think. Yeah, but it all all works and coalesces. I, I don't know. I love him. I love the man. Yeah, this movie is like objectively not good, but it's pretty fun for a laugh. Yeah, I mean, it. It kicks off on such a funny foot because I don't know if it wanted to be Blade Runner, but it definitely wanted to homage Blade Runner because it has a crawl at the beginning that sets up our world and uses all of the language that we'll need to know. Like in Blade Runner, it sets up like what a Blade Runner is and what a replicant is and what, what kind of world, dystopian world we're living in. This is throwing so many terms at me. <laughs> I'm just like, and it's paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. It's quite long. And I'm just like, I don't. I, I can't follow this. There's there's too much. You're throwing too many new words at me. I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope that I can follow this throughout the runtime. There's too many things. It was uh, it was it was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's based on that William Gibson short story. And then he did the screenplay and he's like the 
like he's like credited with creating or popularizing cyberpunk. So his books are going to be really complicated in that way. And then I think they tried to do it. He he says, like William Gibson says, that there's an original version that was cut by the director, um, Robert Longo, that was, according to William Gibson, quote, very funny, very alternative piece of work that was then, quote, taken away and recut by the American distributor. And he says made into what isn't a very good movie. But he claims that there's an original version of it that is amazing that doesn't exist, that there's no existing copy of. Which, like, I don't doubt there is an original director's cut. Is it amazing? I don't know. Yeah. This is where it becomes tricky with, you know, studios owning rights to things for so long and properties and stuff like that because it'd be so cool if the artists behind this were able to, if they wanted to, to just take this and make a recut and just release it if they wanted to. But because it was in the 90s, it sounds like they took the original cut, turned it into this, and, and there and there no longer was. Like, they don't have the ability to have that original cut be back. Yeah. Like, who knows if, like, even the original footage exists that they could take I don't think all it of does. it and cut it together. Yeah, th- so the Such closest they've gotten to that is, like, the Robert Longo-approved black-and-white version, which he claims gets closer to his original v- vision by putting it in black-and-white. But, yeah, it's... <laughs> it's it's a funny, it's a funny movie. They definitely were trying to like the distributor. The, I don't know who made it, but they were definitely trying to like pump it hard as like a blockbuster movie. There was a video game. Oh shit. Naturally. Um, I hope it came in a cereal box. <laughs> I hope so too. But it just, it's, it's so radically dated. Like I, I laughed when we were watching it that like, Wow, they didn't foresee Bluetooth. Like everything's jacked in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 90s were all about jacking yeah, in. Yeah, it was all about internet. like that plug. Um, <laughs> yeah, they loved putting plugs in the back of Keanu Reeves' head in the 90s. And I love that we've got Mrs. Saw herself in this. <laughs> yeah. uh, I can't remember what her name is in the Saw franchise, but she's like the main detective after Danny Glover. Yeah. She's in like first four or five Possibly six movies. Yeah, she plays a big role in four, which if you listen to our rad rap, not a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Not our fave, but speaking of faves, apparently, I don't know if this was just said off the cuff as a joke, but we've heard that this is our friend Lori, who we've had on the show a couple times and or at least on the show once. Mm -hmm. And um, we've done Lori's incredible film festival. And eventually there will be a second episode of that. We've heard rumor that this is Lori's dad's favorite movie of all time. And when you told me that, if that is in fact true, it checks out. Like, And I can so see the threads of her dad having this as his favorite movie and then leading to... Yeah, but she doesn't think it's a great movie. But I, But I think that's so great because looking at the movies that Lori loves and loves to share with us you can totally see the linkage between between the two of them. And I love that so when much. When I gave this two stars on my letterbox, our friend Tex, who's also friends with Lori, just commented, so you're saying Lori's dad is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, also, this movie has like a violent street preacher in it. And like too real. Do all major cities have street preachers? Because our city does. And it's yeah, gross and annoying to say the least. Yeah. It's really bad when they're on, especially 
when they're, out, they're on the corner blasting their fucking megaphones or their shitty speakers and you're standing there waiting to cross the street. You're just, just like, ugh. The other day, though, I was driving um, downtown and Street Preacher was there on the box with the megaphone. But then there was another person dressed in like a rainbow onesie just dancing beside him. That's hilarious. But it was cold. I was like, oh, my goodness, you people. The commitment to the troll is really. Yeah, I was like, thumbs up to that person. Um, I have one last thing to say, because this was just a ridiculous romp. Like, this is a good put it on with a group of friends. Have a laugh. Have a laugh. Get some snacks. Don't take it too seriously. Have fun with it. Um, this could totally be like a The Room style mm. played in theaters and like everybody enters into an agreement that you're going to like engage with the film audibly. Mm-hmm. And I would be OK with that if that was like pre-knowledge going in. Yeah. Um. But I have to tell you what Roger Ebert said about this film. Mm-hmm. He said, quote, that Johnny Mnemonic is one of the great goofy gestures of recent cinema. <laughs> That's uh, I love that a lot. And a goofy gesture it is indeed. How did it make you feel? Uh, grateful. I've never surgically put electronics into my body. I remember there was a period in my life where I'm like, man, I just wish I had like, I just wish I had like headphones or like earbuds like implanted into my ears so I could listen to music anytime I wanted and it just sounded great or like no data overload man data overload there'd be leakage or like those people that get like chips implanted into their hands so like they can tap they can use tap for their bank card and shit like that you want to be a cyborg yeah yeah I'm I'm grateful I'm not I love that that's the singular way this movie made you feel it has nothing to do with the movie itself yeah but the whole time just like don't push it in me yeah (laughs) Don't make me a data carrier. Uh, how to make you feel? Just a sense of easy, vapid fun. It's it's not too serious. And that's great. Yeah. It's not spiral bad. No. It's like we're having a good time bad. Yeah. I, w- I, I Like you said, I totally put this on again with a group of friends just to have a romp. It's our 101st episode. So what's the perfect movie to pair with the 101st episode? why it's 1961's 101 Dalmatians, of course. An animation adventure comedy. It was uh, directed by Clyde Jeronimi, Hamilton Lusk, and Wolfgang Reitherman. Uh, the story was written by Bill Pete, and it's based on the book The 101 Dalmatians by Dodie Smith. It stars the voice talents of Rod Taylor as Pongo, Lisa Davis as Anita Dearly, Betty Lou Gerson as Corella DeVille, Martha Wentworth as Nanny, Ben Wright as Roger, and Kate Bauer as Perdita. Synopsis. When a litter of Dalmatian puppies are abducted by the minions of Corella DeVille, the owners must find them before she uses them for a diabolical fashion statement. Wow. I, I like that a lot. All right. What'd you think? I mean, this movie's kind of fucked. Like- <laughs> It gets upsetting. Oh, yeah. The intentions of Corella DeVille are some really deplorable Like, this shit. could be funded by PETA, you know? Like, <laughs> it's it's a really dark story mm-hmm. that, like, I feel like as a kid you might not totally get. Yeah, it's kind of like the thing that makes Corella DeVille bad, but you're like, yeah, that's not good. But as you get older, you're like, that's really not good. That was like, really messed up. Like if you found out your boss was wanting your puppies from your dog 
and was collecting puppies in order to skin them and to make Well, like Siamese cats coats. are beautiful. What if like your boss was like, oh, How can much? I just borrow Thompson? <laughs> I'm just going to make a Siamese cat coat. Uh-uh. <laughs> Granted, we don't have 101 Thompsons, but can you imagine if we did? I would just lay down on the ground and just let them all crawl on top of me. <laughs> You'd probably suffocate to death. I've always said I would love to have Thompson be like lion size, have the same mannerisms that he has now, but lion size for just like a day, just for like 24 hours. I'd wreck everything. Truly. Um, the two things I want to start with with this movie is the animation is beautiful mm-hmm. in this like very like artsy way. Yeah. I, I want to I wanna say this is one of my favorite animated films of all time. I watched it a lot growing up and the art style is also one of my favorites. Like to what you're saying, it feels kind of outside of a lot of what Disney was doing. It feels a little bit other. Yeah. I read a big thing about like this technique they were using for it that to be honest, I didn't understand, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but something about it made it easier to animate the spots on the Dalmatians without it being too labor intensive. I think it was Mm. something like overlays or I'm not, I'm not sure. There was like a huge portion of the Wikipedia page dedicated to like this new animation style that they hadn't quite perfected in other things that Disney was like, whatever, give it a shot. And then it worked really well. Mm -hmm. But I think part of that is what creates this almost, um, there's parts of it that are so defined and then parts of it that are so, um, soft focus almost. Mm. And that like, there's a little bit of rawness to it where sometimes Mm -hmm. it feels not perfectly, in line when we watch it on blu-ray so like you see the detail in the hand-drawn lines so it adds to that the imperfections that you're kind of talking and i really like that like i think that's really yeah charming well the the link from this to one of my favorite things it blew my mind when we saw it for the first time was the paper man short that i think played before wreck it ralph which was taking what felt like this sort of style and then bringing in a little bit of the 2D slash 3D element to it. But I so love the animation style and, and the character design in this movie specifically, like from the dogs to the humans as well. Yeah, I just think it's so gorgeous. And then you're setting it in London, and this is a this is a British movie, which is also just just kind of adds to the charm. Which takes me to my second point. The voice acting is awesome. Yeah. Like, it's really phenomenal. Um, They were very intentional about who they cast for the voice here. A lot of people who worked in radio. And then also they intentionally cast the animals with deeper voices than the humans because they wanted the animals to seem, like, more powerful than Mm. the humans, which is really cool. Well, and that's established right off the top with the... Uh, narration from Pongo and referring to Roger as his pet. Yeah, it like takes you a minute the first time you watch it to understand that it is Pongo talking, not Roger, right? And then it's quite funny and such a soothing voice. Like so good. Pongo's voice played by Rod Taylor could like easily be an audiobook <laughs> reader. <laughs> totally. Just kind of lull you to sleep at night. But yeah, there's this this real beauty in the voice acting and this real like maturity in the film. Like yeah, you yeah. you well know, and I don't know how much I've talked about this on the show, but that while I love, like I love young adult fiction, I love 
animated film. I love family film. As soon as it gets too little kiddish, I'm kind of out. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons for that is I think it just doesn't give kids credit. Like mm-hmm. looking at 101 Dalmatians, there's not a lot in it that's like silly. Even the like funny moments are quite clever. Like the moment when Pongo's looking for a mate for Roger and there's all these humans and dogs that look alike. Like there's a cleverness to that humor, Mm -hmm. but there's not a lot of silly, silly humor. Yeah. Like even the, the humor and like the Colonel not understanding what's being said. I mean, well, even like how slapsticky all the Horace and Jasper stuff gets, it, it doesn't feel over the top. Like it, it just feels, they set, they do a good job setting up a lot of dread with Horace and Jasper actually. And, uh, when they start getting all bumbly and everything, it feels like, okay, these nasty men are kind of getting what's coming to them. Not now like slipping on banana peels. Whoa, 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 kind of way. Yeah. So, you know, I appreciate that this film doesn't like speak down to, or feel like it needs to like little kid eyes. It's stuff because it's, it's always funny to me when I watch something and I go like, what would little kids get out of this? And then you say to me, I've been watching this on repeat since I was really little. Oh Yeah. You know, so I like films and books and and art for a younger audience that gives them credit that they can appreciate things without being like inane. Without having to like squat, put the hands on the knees and be like, here's a movie for you, little guy. I'm a dog and up. Ha ha ha. Well, and I think another thing that's a testament to why I love this so much is because the opening title sequence, as soon as it started playing it just shot me right back to being a little kid again. And I love it so much, but it got to the end of it. I'm like, that felt very 1960s. Like just the, the humor that they used and the cleverness within it. And I kind of had that air across the whole movie. And I didn't realize until looking up after, like it's from 1961 and it's like, and then through the nature of the show and us discovering more cinema, we've discovered that we both really like 1960s cinema including animation apparently yeah the other great thing about this movie is that so many um kids things are real Mm anti-cat and this is a pro cat movie Mm -hmm. like the cat is the singular cat we spend time with mr tibbs mr tibbs is a hero um i love the like animal camaraderie including interspecies like the horse is helping the cat is helping Dogs of different breeds are helping. There's this real like community care happening that's quite beautiful. Mm. And I think is actually a really good thing for like young people to see. It's fat shamey with um the one pup. Oh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Like that joke goes on too long. Yeah. And then like, yeah, there's just some stuff with that that it's like, ah, why'd you have to do that? But. What it has to say about community care and helping those around you, even if they look different or are different species, is really beautiful. But also this, I feel like this does have a beautiful message about unconditional love, Um, especially from not just Purdy and Pongo uh, as it relates to the puppies, but also um, from Anita and Roger Mm -hmm. and how much they... They care about their like every, everybody from the dogs to nanny to the puppies, like their family. And mm-hmm. they believe in 
if we're going to do this, we're going to we're going to go all in on this. Yeah, and it's like never really a question. It's just like, you know, if someone needs a home, then we're going to give them a home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and Corella Deville is like one of the all time scariest villains in like a very real way. Um, I think her voice acting is is really, really strong. The actress who played her, Betty Lou Gerson, said her goal with the voice was to create, quote, a phony theatrical voice, someone who set sail from New York but didn't quite reach England. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. So like this like attempt to sound like British debonair, but it's so put on. Yeah. Totally comes across. Well, especially when she comes and she she's not upset when we first see her and she's all just like, how marvelous, how marvelous. Yeah, like it's very performative. But as soon as she lets that down and her true intentions and her sort of anger or frustration starts coming out, then like, oh, this is the core of who she is as a person. On this viewing, what I really felt with her is that she actually isn't on screen that much, but her presence and the sort of uh, how imposing and how scary she is, is kind of felt even when she's not on screen, which I think is super effective for <laughs> for all intents and purposes a family movie yeah that song about her rips too um love the jazziness of it i want to speak to that so i really love how, how much of a troll roger is he's a musician and he's trying to crack he, he has the melody melody first my dear and then the lyrics i love that he starts playing this Corella Deville song and just inserts her name into it and is it's 100% just to troll this woman that he really despises and just wants to bug her and then eventually like sells the song I don't know how the fuck you do that with somebody's name in it who's a real person the 60s didn't matter yeah pish posh but I wanted to share that I think that I unintentionally modeled some of my behavior after Roger because- or you saw yourself in Roger well, when I was younger and I still lived at home, something I would do when I would just get into a silly mood to bug my sister is I would pick up my guitar and I would chase her around the house singing songs at her, about her and whatever she was doing. So at, there was one point where I was chasing her around and, I'm, and I was saying, it was something like, Allison, why won't you dance? Why won't you dance in your hissy fit pants? Was she having a hissy fit? Yeah, she okay. she she was getting she was getting mad, and so she like slammed her bedroom door in my face, and I just stood outside and just like, why won't you dance? And then that That's annoying. And then that led to me and my uh, my friend who we were in a high school band together. We wrote a song called Hissy Fit Pants, and we would play it at shows. And it was essentially just like a very loud, fast punk version of. Hissy fit pants. Yeah, it was like that, why but a rock banger. Yeah, so <laughs> why won't you dance in your hissy fit pants was a a frequent song played at shows I mean, of ours. To a certain degree, you still do that, just not in a trolley way, but you'll just like start. I mean, yeah, there was this one time you still sing this a lot. I was reading a book and you were annoyed because you wanted to hang out with me. And it was not by Jeffrey Eugenides. <laughs> but for some reason you thought it was. And then you started singing, Jeffrey Eugenides, you, you took, took my girl, girl away from me. From me. <laughs> <laughs> and now you still sing that all the time. So that's a pretty frequent occurrence. So you come out of the bathroom and you're singing a song of some kind. I can't even. There's so many. There's a new one every day that I can't remember them all. 
But if the, the but that'll that'll get stuck in your head. That Jeffrey, Jeffrey Eugenides. Yeah, you should turn it into a rock banger song. Jeffrey Eugenides, you took my girl away from me. You could kind of throw that into any genre. I feel. Yeah, I'll think about it. I mean, that's a Carilla Deville conundrum, though, because that's a real person, the real name, <laughs> true, real writer. Although you're not saying like he's the most evil person in the world. Yeah, you just took my girl away from me. <laughs> through your books. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this was the first animated film to ever earn over $10 million wow. and they didn't think it was going to do as well as it did. And it did. And I think that the diversity of not diversity is not the right word, but the like experiments with different kind of tones in Disney films. I think that can really, I'm just claiming this. I'm not, I didn't read it on the internet that it can be traced back to this doing well. That if this hadn't done well, they might have just stuck with the like Snow White, Cinderella's, mm. that kind of thing. Um, and I'm glad that that's not the only thing they do. And mm-hmm. I think this is a really good movie. Yeah, I, I love it. It is still one of my favorites. How does it make you feel? It makes me feel charmed by the animation, moved by the collective care and thrilled by the adventure. It's honestly pretty scary. Yeah. I- poor puppies. And I'm that little one who just keeps wanting to watch the TV and it's like, what? what? Yeah, you're like, lucky. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) How does it make you feel? Heartwarmed by its unconditional love and its depiction of communal support. So this was a tough week. This this past week was the, this past week was the anniversary of my dad's death. And like for the first time in a long time, I was like, I don't feel like I need to watch something super griefy. Mm. Like I don't feel like I need to watch After Sun. I don't feel like I need to like watch a movie that he and I watched together that I knew that he liked. Like I just, I do feel like I I have like a tone I want to go for, but I don't feel like it needs to be like overly geared towards like my dad died this day 12 years ago. Um, So I picked the 2017 drama film Columbus, which we'd seen before, but we hadn't done on the show. And I picked this because it's just like a quiet reflective beautiful movie that kind of like takes pause to allow time to think. Mm. And that was kind of the mood I was in the mood. So that was the mood I was in um, that particular night. So Columbus was directed and written by Koganada, who also directed and wrote one of our all time favorite films after Yang. It stars John Cho as Jin, Haley Lou Richardson as Casey, Parker Posey as Eleanor, Michelle Forbes as Maria and Rory Culkin as Gabriel. The synopsis is a Korean-born man finds himself stuck in Columbus, Indiana, where his architect father is in a coma. The man meets a young woman who wants to stay in Columbus with her mother, a recovering addict, instead of pursuing her own dreams. What did you think of Columbus? I was so excited that you picked this because we've only seen it the once. And And I picked it that time, too. You did. And we recently bought a, a version of it with a really nice cover on Blu-ray and I was excited to dig into it. Koganata is just such a beautiful filmmaker. Like you said, After Yang is one of our favorite films. And I feel that in this movie, he executes beauty in bundles through his direction, through his storytelling, through his casting, through the shots and the visuals that he uses. And... Uh, I will watch any anything that he does. I hope he has something new on the horizon. 
But when I got to the end of this movie, a, a first thought that I had was that this is a better version of the movies that we watched in high school that carved our movie journey. Like this, if I had seen this instead of a Garden State, Elizabeth Town, stuff like that, this would have stood the t- test of time and I feel like I would have carried it with me. Well, there's something really, there's something that I do really, that I am really drawn to in art and film particularly, which is the like people who have never met kind of finding themselves connected. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those other films then became these kind of indie romances. And that's not what yeah. this film is going for. This this film to me is not trying to be quirky. It's not trying to be a love story. It's just a human story. Mm-hmm. And, and these things happen. Like how many, I mean, who hasn't had these like moments of connection, whether it's like a good conversation with a customer when you were working retail or vice versa, like a worker when you went into a store or you know, the friendship you had for one class in high school and then when you didn't have a class together anymore, you didn't really see each other or, mm-hmm. you know, like I had a lot of folks who I was close with while I was in university, but then we didn't really stay in touch after. And I think what this film does so wonderfully is show how that can, that presence, that kind of accidental connection that happens because of a place and a time can be such a beautiful and profound informative thing that will matter forever. And yet it doesn't have to be like, and now you're married, Yeah, (laughs) you know, it can just be like this connection shaped my life and existed when I needed it. And that's what it was. And then we had to go in different ways. Um, And I think this film just focuses so much, not just with the characters of Jin and Casey, but with all of the characters. Um, Like I even think between like Eleanor and Jin, and between Casey and her mom and between Jin and his dad and between Casey and Gabriel on this, like, like Casey and Gabriel is such an example of like just coworker friendship that mm-hmm. like you're friends cause you work together. But when you don't work together anymore, you probably won't really talk anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean that they don't have this like beautiful connection. Mm-hmm. It just means that it's like particular to this time and place. Yeah. It, it kind of makes me think of, our our friend our friend Jeremy used this language kind of when we were were first getting acquainted and had, had started talking more and more this idea of being tethered to people and how there are just circumstances and like you said whether it's place or just certain time of the year time in your life whatever it is that brings you together when you needed to come together and I, I think that this is a really beautiful example of that, of these two people and, and the other people, like you said, surrounding them, but specifically these two people finding each other and helping each other in direct and indirect ways and helping get to and helping realize what the next step on their life journeys are. Well, in the language I used... Um in my letterbox review after we watched this film this week was that like Jin is a character who's very good at letting go, but not very good at grabbing hold. Mm-hmm. And Casey is very good at grabbing hold, but very bad at letting go. Mm-hmm. And they can both kind of offer what they get from the, the other ability to each other. Mm-hmm. 
not that letting go is more important than grabbing hold, but that we we need to have both capacities and know when to employ them. Yeah. Um, and they kind of just help each other out through that and their different like pasts and their different desires and fears about the future because they're coming from these different skill sets and these different life experiences, they can kind of offer that to each other and not in a didactic way, but in a like, I'm just going to tell you what, what my life's been like and what I see in you as someone who's kind of just met you without any expectations that anybody else has. And then you get to take that and do what you want with it. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful. And then of course the other part of it is this architecture part, yeah, which is just stunning um, Koganata said about this film that he feels, quote, architecture is the structuring of emptiness and that he feels human emotion is the same thing. Mother <laughs> fucker. And so he was using architecture to mirror emotion. Like that was his intention with the film and the way that it was shot. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. Like it, arc, the architecture is shot so beautifully. And this, this film, like, um, Haley Lou Richardson's character like just makes me want to get into architecture, not to be an architect, but to just be like somebody that admires and loves architecture. And, and and it's something that I kind of wish I would stop and smell the roses on a little bit more. Cause, and I kind of, since we watched this, I have a little bit like there's this, there's, there's this on our, on our, on our drive to Metro cinema, which we take a lot. There's this building uh, that I think I, I can't even think of what it is. It's like an equestrian center where like horses are. Oh, that's a long Fox drive. Yeah. yeah. And I was looking at it the other when We were driving past in the dark and it actually has some like really beautiful details on it. I'm just like, I never really stopped to smell the roses on that before. Well, I think, I mean, that's lovely, but I think with this film, I get even more from it than like, Oh, appreciate architecture is just appreciate everything. Right. Like I feel like uh, Casey's approach to why she loves architecture and like how she experiences it when she's standing in front of a building or inside of a building. I feel like it's the same approach we take to film. And, you know, we we saw the last movie that we saw this week. Which was a deeply emotional movie. The person who was like front most in the theater, like as soon as the credits rolled, just like whipped up and then like flung their jacket like onto them but like, like covered like, the whole screen like for everyone martin sheen jacket and i'm just like oh can you just like i'm not saying everybody has to stay through the credits but like that's the rush you know and so i feel like there's that that's the approach we have to film is this of course we love movies but it's also about like allowing the movies to be an experience for us and to like sitting with that and i feel like that's the approach that casey takes to architecture like appreciating the like past and the labor and the intention and then the unique thing it's doing for her and that doesn't just have to be architecture or film it can be like literally anything it yeah. can be like the way that you hug your cat with yeah. like a deep intention to like just experience that present moment and also connect that to you know like when we to like get kind of frou-frou about it like you really stop and have like a beautiful moment of connection with the cat and also think about like 12 years of connecting with the cat. Mm-hmm. And then like even beyond that, thinking about like my connection with my family cat and with like friends cats that are gone and mm. that kind of thing. There's like a real beauty in that. And I think that's what Casey is doing with these buildings 
And you can take that into so many different aspects of life. Yeah. It, it all comes back to the, how does it make you feel? And like stopping to ask yourself that question when it applies to like you're saying anything. Well, there's literally a moment where I don't think that's the language used. I think Jin says like, what do you like about this? Mm-hmm. And then it's Casey just starts listing off facts and he goes, no, what do you like about, or he says, how, do, why does it move you is what he says. Mm. And, and that's the, he's saying, I don't, I'm not interested in what you think about it. I'm interested in what you feel about it. Mm-hmm. Just something my therapist will say to me quite often is no, you're in your head, but what is your heart? Like what's going on in your heart? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, not what do yeah, you yeah. think? What do you feel? Right. And both are important. Think is important, but feel is important too. And that's why we do both here. Absolutely. I mean, you don't want to be all feeling, you know, thinking, but um, yeah, there's a beauty and an intentionality. And I, I think that that's mirrored in the way Koganata makes films, to be quite honest, like his films yeah. are made to let you, have your own feelings about like what it's moving within you without telling you exactly telegraphing how you should be moved by it or if you should be moved by it. But I also like that in his movies, he allows his, he wants to have his characters have conversations about how they're feeling and like, just be, I'm getting emotional thinking about the last scene of after Yang, just being very direct and sharing feelings and, not holding anything back like even even he does it really well verbally but there's a hug that jen and casey share in this movie that it's another thing that i get emotional just thinking about because there's just so much weight behind it and the from the like expressions on their faces to like the way that they choose to hug each other super beautiful and i love how koganata is so thoughtful and reflective and he's thoughtful about what's in the lines, but also what's between the lines. I mean, that shitty that you read me about architecture filling in the emptiness, like what the fuck? When I was really feeling on this rewatch that like the brick element in front of the library that Casey works at, which is this like almost touching to like brick features, like kind of jutting out towards each other. That is Jin and Casey. Yeah. Or you could look at it as like Casey with her mom and Jin with his dad, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of like almost connected, but not quite. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of, and I mean, I don't think that Koganot is trying to tell you what you should and shouldn't take from any of that. There's a really, really beautiful review from a person named Sheila O'Malley that I just want to read. It's a, it's a couple more lines than usual, but it's really lovely. So, Uh, Quote, what Koganata has done with Columbus, along with cinematographer Elijah Christian, is to blend the background into the foreground and vice versa so that you see things through the eyes of the two architecture obsessed main characters. Watching the film is almost like feeling the muscles in your eyes shift as you look up from reading a book to stare out at the ocean. From the very first very first shot, it's clear the buildings will be essential. They are a part of the lives unfolding in their shadows. Sometimes it almost seems like they are listening. There's a story in Columbus. What is remarkable is how intense it is, given the stillness and quiet of Koganata's style and the focus with which he films the buildings. Mm. But I love that um, that example of the like your muscles shifting because totally like there's times where we're staring at the architecture in this really like grand way, and then we shift to kind of the like everydayness of a character's life, and 
John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson are both phenomenal in this and both should be in more things and be protagonists in more things. Um, mm-hmm. They're both really, really, really subtle and emotional and real mm. in a really lovely way. And uh, this week we watched The Criterion Closet with Charles Melton and I'm going to steal this language that he used in it because I think it actually reflects our favorite genre of film, mm-hmm. which is sorrowful hope. Mm-hmm. So he said, I believe he said in the in his little time in the closet, which was very cute and mm-hmm. highly recommend watching it, um, that he had told a friend he wanted to feel sorrowful hope and was looking for a movie that contained that. And I'm like, I think that's our favorite genre. Mm-hmm. Sad, but with hope. Yeah. And I feel like both Columbus and After Yang are just full of sorrowful hope. Yeah. Beautiful. And, and that's, I mean... To go back to like, I picked this on the anniversary of my dad's death. That's kind of what I was looking for, like an ability to reflect and and feel emotional, but with like an undercurrent of connection and hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nailed it. How did Columbus make you feel? Totally enamored with this beautiful piece of cinema. How did it make you feel? It made me feel moved by the quiet beauty and connection. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, and the next movie we watched was my mystery movie pick. And I wanted to revisit something we, another one we'd only seen once before, which was a 2014 comedy drama romance film, Obvious Child. It was directed by Julian Robespierre. The screenplay was written by Julian Robespierre based on the story uh, that was written by Karen Maine, Julian Robespierre, Elizabeth Holm, which was uh, originally a short film written by those folks as well. Uh, and Anna Bean uh, was an additional writer for the short film. Uh, it stars Jenny Slate as Donna, Jake Lacey as Max, Gabby Hoffman as Nellie, Gabe Liedman as Joey, Richard Girl Talk Kind as Jacob, <laughs> and Polly Draper as Nancy. Synopsis. A 20-something comedian's unplanned pregnancy forces her to confront the realities of independent womanhood for the first time. What do you think about this child? This was such an interesting experience because we'd only watched it once, and I think we watched it like, fairly soon after it came out. Like yeah. we watched it at home. So it wasn't in immediately when it came out. Mm-hmm. And I remember loving it. Yeah. Like loving it. And this watching it now, 
it just became so clear how like 10 years can change the game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like 10 years in your own life as you shift and change and then 10 years in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I still liked it, but I did not love it. Mm -hmm. You said when it was over that it was like painfully from the odds. Um, from the naughties, more specific. Naughties, what does that mean? There's the oddies and then there's the, there's the naughties, the odds and the knots. So the odds are like 2000 to 2009? Yeah. Okay. And then the knots are the tens. Wow, that's too confusing for me, but, but it, accept it. <laughs> it feels firmly rooted in the naughties. Like from, I mean, aesthetically, the, the wardrobe, the iPhones. But you, early iPhones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to your point, I totally saw our young adulthood in this and I felt how much, I remember how much we loved it. I was, I've been wanting to rewatch this for some time. It wasn't available on anything except to buy. Then I'm just like, fuck it. I really want to watch this. Let's just do it. And it, while it didn't hit as many emotional parts of me on this watch, I still I still felt its importance. Like I I think it's important that media like this exists, especially in a world that is currently going in reverse, in a world where Roe v. Wade is getting overturned and people want to turn bodily autonomy into a nice to have rather than a right. I think that having films like this and have them be accessible and approach these things the way that this film does is still very relevant and important. Yeah, I mean, that was the interesting kind of reflection point for me is when this came out, I don't think I'd seen anything like it. And as a person who has never wanted to have children, Mm. like I've known since I was in elementary school that I didn't want to have kids, like that has just been, and not just not want to have kids, but like I never want to be pregnant. Um, So this would be a nightmare for me because I don't want to ever get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um. But it was really disappointing to me in so much media growing up and even in my early 20s that there would be these characters who like didn't want to have kids, didn't want to have kids, didn't want to have kids. And then in the end they do and they realize that's what they wanted all along. Mm -hmm. And just feeling that there was a total lack of representation of, of particularly women, but like anybody who like doesn't want to have that kind of family. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of, I think one of the first films I saw that, approach that without it being super sad mm-hmm. but also still gave like weight to the emotion like this isn't easy for the character of donna mm-hmm. and it's like there are these like moments of shame and moments of sadness but yet she always knows what she wants to do mm-hmm. um and I, I yeah i think that like seeing this the first time was radical now i think what's great is that we have more, not enough, mm-hmm. but more representations of people who have non-traditional families who don't want to have kids. We have more uh, depictions of abortion in like ways that are not considered incredibly sorrowful, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so this feels a little less radical than it did when it first came out, which is like not the film's fault. That's just a good thing. Yeah. That we have more representation now. And so, you know, in retrospect, maybe this isn't the best version of it. But I even think of that when we've watched like 
you know, films like early films that had like uh, queer women love stories. And it's like, this was kind of cheese, but mm-hmm. we needed it to like open the gate for these other movies. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what obvious child is. It's, it's a real like gate opener for telling different kinds of stories about children, having children, abortions, pregnancy, family, mm-hmm. friendship, like all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. It totally nails those aspects. I mean, I I really love Jenny Slate. I think she's very babely. I have a little crush on her. And the humor from her character. And I also just think Jenny Slate as a person <laughs> is just right up my alley. Like, she's just a big goofball. And I just hear Marcel Deschel's voice so much. That's just and I'm it. just like, I just, Marcel Deschel is the one talking about farting. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's hard to, like divorce the two when there's just some things she delivers it's like oh my god that's just marcel lachelle <laughs> well that's the funny thing is i don't i don't know how familiar we were with jenny slate yeah when not. we saw this the first time i was like she's the one that got fired from snl for saying 100 right like i don't know that we had watched marcel lachelle or if we hadn't maybe hadn't quite made the connection between the two of them um and Jake Lacey, I hadn't seen in anything. And I remember seeing this in like 2014 and being like, oh, he's so sweet. And, and now real, I've seen him in The White Lotus. It's a real fucking White Lotus. Yeah, which was many more hours than we spend with him in Obvious Child. And now I'm just like, your face is so slappable. <laughs> um, so that's another like, ah, oh, that's not fair to the movie that in retrospect, these people have become so um, tied to a particular thing. And now I'm putting that on it. Mm. But is what it is. I think that a big standout for me and the things that I remember the most are the connections between certain characters in this. So there's a scene between Donna and her mom that is probably the biggest standout for me. Yeah, I think it's a masterful scene. Uh, It's totally beautiful and so impactful. And I also love uh, the relationship between Donna and Nellie, uh, played by Gabby Hoffman, because it just it just seems so unconditional and so caring and Nellie just being there for Donna to hear her out. If she, to see if she wants to talk about something when she doesn't, she doesn't push the matter. It's really lovely. And I also really love Gabby Hoffman. So like pairing the two of them together is, was just magic. And the last thing I'll say is that that Paul Simon track rips the title track. Oh yeah, it's there's some there's some good music in this in general and yeah, I think it's I think this isn't a movie I'm going to revisit often. Um I think that it was really radical for its time. Um Jillian Robespierre who's who made the short film in tandem with some other folks and then this one said that you know all of this came out of her frustration with she said quote misrepresentation of women on screen when it came to unplanned pregnancy. Mm. Um she talked about films like Juno and Knocked Up and feeling like these were just not realistic portrayals of that. Mm-hmm. And also with the goal to destigmatize abortion, I guess that all over the posters, it was called an abortion comedy, which she didn't like and felt it was reductive, but was like, but it's something that the word abortion is on a poster. Yeah. Um, the same had, this is quite harsh. So there's a reviewer who said at the time, uh, her name is Michelle Goldberg. She said, quote, if the ordinary drama of abortion were more regularly represented in the movies, obvious child wouldn't be much more than an amusing hipster diversion. That's really harsh. 
but I do think it's kind of true. Mm-hmm. Um, and watching it now, I'm like, especially thinking of what you just said about Columbus and comparing it to like Garden State. That obvious child is somewhere kind of in between a Garden State and a yes. Columbus, but Columbus came out in 2017. Like it's only three years after this, mm-hmm. so <laughs> you know. I'm going to keep revisiting Columbus over and over again. And this one, while I I think it's really important and I'm really grateful it exists, Mm -hmm. it's just not one I need to revisit all the time. Yeah. Like I think honestly, I, the, the relationship that exists between Donna and Max is the least interesting aspect of the movie. It's sweet and nice. And it's, it definitely puts the romance into the romance genre, sub genre of this film. But I, I'm such a big fan of all of the other relationships in Donna's life. Yeah. And I want to watch more of those. Yeah. I think a film that, you know, emphasized that over the Max stuff, particularly thinking about like kind of the trajectory of where this film eventually goes by the end. I'm like, ah, I, that doesn't really do it for me anymore in a way that it did in my twenties. Yes. Um, which doesn't just show, how the film has aged, but shows how I have. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a good thing. And I'm grateful for this film for kind of being a reflection point on me and how I've, I've changed and, and what matters to me has changed. Yeah. Really well put. How did it make you feel? It made me feel not as radically impressed with it as I was when it came out, but still charmed by its humor and heart. Yeah. I echo that. Um, it made me feel appreciative of its beauty, humor and importance. Okay, we've got a big daddy here. Holy shit. The long road to this one. Oh my goodness. So this movie is a movie that we have been so anxiously anticipating, so excited for since we very first heard about it that we have watched the trailer on repeat, showed it to people, and then it started coming out in late December in places around the world and we kept checking showtimes and checking showtimes and checking showtimes and finally it came to Edmonton at one theater only playing three times a day. We finally got to see the 2023 drama fantasy romance All of Us Strangers. It is directed and written by Andrew Haig and it is based on a novel by somebody whose name I did not write down. (laughs) And it is based on a novel from the 1980s by Taichi Yamada. It actually was made, that was made into a film in the 80s um, by the director who also did House. So I'm kind of interested in watching that. Agreed. Um, It stars Andrew Scott as Adam, Paul Meskel as Harry, Jamie Bell as dad, Claire Foy as mom. And the synopsis is a screenwriter drawn back to his childhood home enters into a fledgling relationship with a mysterious neighbor as he then discovers his parents appear to be living just as they were on the day they died 30 years before. What did you think of all of us strangers? I wanted to elaborate a little bit more on our journey to seeing this movie because we got such a runaround with the release date of this movie being told it was be released before Christmas and then the first week of January and then the second week of January and then the third week of January. We were manically checking show times. We even reached out to our buddies at the Edmonton International Film Festival who sometimes do one-off screenings of films to be like, could you bring all of us strangers, <laughs> please? <laughs> um, and then, yeah, like you said, it finally came to just one of the city's strangest theaters. 
which is perfect for all of us strangers. And we had we had friends of ours that got to see an early screening of it in like October, I think, even. And they had traveled to see that. Yeah. It was at a film festival. And like they were fully aware of um our, but specifically your love of After Sun. And they're like, oh my God, this is they were the only ones like the, there was a lot of discourse online of like, this is this year's after sun and like bring tissues. This is going to fuck you up. You're going to like theaters of people are just sobbing through it. So, and like, we're, we're all for that. Like, and we set ourselves up for success. We brought our buddy, Ashley, who provided a full box of Kleenex. Um, I knew going into this as excited as I was that it would be a bit tricky because when you anticipate something as highly as this and the things our friends are saying about it and that the like trusted people online are saying about it. And then you have Andrew Haig at the helm. You have the cast that this has. It's, uh, it's really, it's really tricky to kind of temper expectations. Yeah. I mean, this is, I put in my letterbox review, like, so it's queer, check. It's about grief, but particularly like dead parent grief, check. Mm-hmm. And then also I have loved so much work by so many of these people. Like Andrew Haig made the show Looking, which is one of my all-time favorite shows. We watched that week to week when it came out, like mm-hmm. from the get-go. I think I started watching it and was like, I actually think you'd like this. Mm-hmm. And then we then watched the first two seasons week to week and the movie when it came out. We really like his movie Weekend, and then we recently watched 45 Years and really like that as well. And then, of course, it is well known on this podcast that I love Paul Meskel. Mm-hmm. And we recently just rewatched Fleabag because we were like so anticipating this movie. We're like, let's revisit Andrew Scott. And I just have such a love for him. Well, I haven't seen as much work that he's done. We do have pre-sale tickets, advanced tickets to Vanya. <laughs> yeah, to the... The, uh, <laughs> the one-man show that he did. Yeah, what's it called? Uh, what does Cineplex call this? Oh, it's like an international theater live or or something like an event, special event cinema or something. Yeah. But they have a name for it when it's like theater, national theater live or something. Yeah. Something like that. Um, Which is cool because I feel like there's some things I I think they did Hamlet when he was in it back in the day. And I kind of wish that we'd had our pulse on that more Mm. because it'd be cool to see those things. Um, Anyway. Yeah. There was, there was high expectations on this and I compared it to like, anticipating Christmas day or anticipating your birthday that like, Mm. even when it's incredible, it's always a little bit of a letdown. And so I'm sad for myself and for this movie that I couldn't go into it with no expectations the way I did with after sun. When we saw after sun, I knew nothing about it. Yeah. Like I literally, I I had never heard of Paul Meskel. I'd never heard of Charlotte Wells. I didn't even know what the movie was about. I just knew that Vincent, who's the artistic director at IFE, had really pushed to get it into the festival and said it was his favorite film that was going to be there and that it was sad, but that's all I knew. I didn't even know what it was about. And so it blew me away. And I think this would have done the same if I'd known nothing about it. And the trailer is amazing and doesn't even give that much away, but there's some amazing lines in the trailer that I like know by heart mm-hmm. because I've watched the trailer so many times that would have been even more impactful in the film if I'd never heard them in the trailer. Mm-hmm. All that being said, I did really love this movie. Yeah. I loved it. I wanted to I wanted to love it wholly immediately, the way that I felt walking out of Aftersun, walking out of everything everywhere all at once. 
I, I, I'm with you. I loved it. I didn't love it in that way, but I, I loved it nonetheless. Mm-hmm. It, and it's, it's complicated, but the more that I sit with this movie, the more that I carry it with me, the more I found that it affects me and impacts me. The more you and I have talked about it, even sitting down and putting together my notes makes me love it even more. I mean, getting into the film itself, it's fucking beautiful. Stop the lights. It's beautiful. It's it's so expertly crafted. It's shot in 35 millimeter. Andrew Haig just... Everything that he does is so, so beautiful. I've, everything that I've seen of his is is so beautiful. And when you have a cast of essentially just four people, they're all immaculate. Like some of the best performances of the year, I would say. Oh, yeah. They're all... And I mean, all of it hinges on Andrew Scott because I don't think there's a scene in this movie that he's not in. Yeah. No, you're right. So it's his interactions with those other three characters and he is amazing in it. Mm -hmm. Like it is. And you know, it's funny. I was thinking back to, um, if you're not paying attention to our episode titles, they're hilarious. Yeah. We're really good. We're really good at episode episode titles. titles. (laughs) Probably not good for SEO, but great for a laugh. Yeah. Um, and really early on, I think it's like episode 16 or something. We had an episode, episode titled just like case do be gay. Yeah. We were saying that like we, you know, more movies where she gets to play a queer character and, and she is getting to play more queer characters, which is really awesome because of her episode title. Totally. Obviously. We're influencers, but I kind of feel like we could have had an episode title. Just let Andrew Scott be gay <laughs> because he, everything I've seen him in, he's either his sexuality hasn't mattered. So say like in a Dunkirk, you know, 1917 is that yeah. what he's in? whatever war movies um or he's he you know hot priest is you know for for all that we know a straight character it was so wonderful to get to see him play a queer character as a queer man and he both him and andrew haig have talked about how this film is deeply personal to them and it like reflects such a personal experience that they are now sharing with the world Mm -hmm. and i you can feel that in his performance Mm-hmm. And I think that's just so wonderful. And I want to see Andrew Scott to get to be gay in more things. Yeah. yeah. Not that I'm saying he has to only play gay characters, but I think that seeing him in that role was really meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that he, he and Paul Meskel, you know what? No, everybody like there's, I felt so much, tenderness and beauty and pain and honesty and reflection through all of the things that happen across the movie, all of which Andrew Scott specifically experiences and he can convey so much with just a look and an expression and so many, so many of the things that he comes across or has to deal with or talks about throughout the film, I found myself relating to a lot more than I thought I was going to be relating to. And that made the experience even more impactful. And there's also this like pressure on the movie for me of like, Oh, it's a dead parent movie and mm. your dad is dead and you've connected with after son and it's the week your dad died. And even, you know, we went with her friend Ashley and she kind of said after like, were you imagining like what it would be like if like you walked into a place and saw your dad? And it's like, well, yeah, Of course. Mm -hmm. But I've been thinking about that since I saw the trailer. Yeah. I actually found myself more connecting to like my, 
my relationship with my mom in this because a lot of this movie is about how when we're with our parents, either in thought or in reality, there's a certain part of us that becomes that kid again and a certain part of them that becomes that young parent again. Mm. And that we, you know, you've said this very recently, completely out of context of this film. It was after therapy where you said it's just so easy to become that little kid again. Yeah. And this movie is about that. And of course, specifically it's filtered around this, like, you know, he was 11 when his parents died and now he's interacting with them again when he's older than them because they've kind of stayed at the age when they died. But I think that that's true of our own lives as well. Like with people who are alive that there's conversations you wish you could have and you wish you could kind of approach them from where you are now but also like honoring who you both were then. Mm-hmm. And there's so much language in this film about like, you're the same, but you're also not. Mm-hmm. And I think about that. Even I was talking um, with our friend Elliot, we were texting about the movie and I said, like it even made me think of I've talked about this a little bit on, on the show, but like my close friend who ghosted me seven years ago, like in so many ways, I feel like if we saw each other again, I'm not the same person I was seven years ago, but I also am the same person I was seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And of course I think about that with my dad, like he's been gone for 12 years now and I'm not, I mean, we just talked about this with obvious child. I'm not the same person I was 12 years ago, but I also am the same person. He'd recognize me. He'd see what parts of me have stayed the same, but I think he'd also be really part, proud of the parts of me that have grown and matured and solidified and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I, so I don't think this film is, exclusive to people who have dead parents and and there was this pressure on it for that for me right that like i feel like other people put on me and i'm not mad at them for that but there was this like oh it's really gonna impact you yeah and i don't necessarily think it did in the way that after sun did mm-hmm. yeah it's 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 interesting um but we did cry a lot we did uh, it was there's a very cute moment where it was a very specific scene where early in the movie we had a box of Kleenex placed on the floor in the middle of all of us and we all reached for Kleenexes and just ripped a one couple, at a time just a couple <laughs> yeah like Ashley went first and then you went second and then I went third and then we just cried the rest of the movie I cried more I cried the most consistently through a movie I've ever cried yeah, yeah. I've cried more at movies but I've never cried that consistently throughout a movie and i it's so funny like i had so many expectations from the trailer of the kinds of dialogue and language that was going to exist between adam and his parents and the things that were going to come up but there was a lot more exploration of like it i kind of went in thinking like it was going to be all like positive coming to resolutions about things but and there is that but it also explores some heavy upsetting painful shit that I'm, I think is totally real in this magical realist world would be a very real thing that would come up. It wouldn't be all positive growth. It would be having to reckon with some shit that was really painful. And I think that what Andrew Haig did with that dialogue and those conversations was absolutely beautiful. There's this one scene. It's a, it's a oneer, but it's just between Adam and his mom uh, and they're laying in bed. It 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 runs like it goes through so many different emotions mm-hmm. throughout the course of the conversation that they're having, and it's so gorgeous and so beautiful. The other thing that surprised me about it, and I agree with you on that point, 
And I really appreciated that point that it wasn't all just like unrealistic happiness. Yeah. That it like dealt with the, like, I think if this is a real therapy movie, I'm like so much of what's happening in this film is shit I'm doing in therapy. Oh yeah. Which is like imagining conversations with people and like putting myself back in these positions and trying to understand like this thing that happened when I was a child. Why, why did I feel this way? And what was going on with these other, these adults in my life and, and that kind of thing. And there's a way of reading this film like that, right? Oh, reading yeah. it as, as an imagination of, of these things that doesn't make it not real. Right. There's a particular point in the movie where it's, and I think it's in the trailer where like, is this real? Mm-hmm. And the film is asking you to expand your understanding of what is real. Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful. But the other thing that really I didn't expect based on the trailer is that a lot of the tone of this movie is quite eerie mm-hmm. and quite unsettling. Yeah. And do you know what's funny going into the movie? I was semi primed for that because in anticipation for the movie, I put the soundtrack onto <laughs> yeah, the soundtrack would, t- would definitely teach you that on, on my uh, into my in, into my Apple music. And I was listening to it. Cause I thought it was going to be, I specifically really like the piece of music that's at the beginning of the trailer and listening through the soundtrack. I'm like, this is actually like, there's not a lot of sweetness here. Like there, it feels ominous. It feels I feel like eerie. The, the score is that's more what I'm talking ominous about. and the soundtrack is more beautiful. Yeah. Sorry. I, I meant the score. Uh, I wasn't listening to this, the songs, the song choices in this movie rip. Yeah. But yeah, specifically I was listening to the score and I'm like, hmm, like tonally this is different than what I was kind of expecting. And while it's still really amazing and well done. It's a really interesting choice of yours to listen to the score before you see the movie. I was getting too excited. I, th- I think it's a bad idea. I know. I, I agree. <laughs> um, Yeah. The, I mean, I, I'm with you here. The more I think about the movie, the more I feel really connected to it and it resonates with me and I I loved it I just thought I was gonna love it yes and that distinction between like a 4.5 like it was a 4.5 immediately mm-hmm. which is a really high score yeah it's really good but it wasn't a 5 and I expected it to be a 5 and, and that distinction that like small step of a distinction between a 4.5 and an immediate 5 disappointed me even though it was so amazing yeah Um, and I was really surprised by the degree to which I felt I needed to figure out what the movie was saying and figure out what the ending meant and, and that, which like Mm -hmm. some films do that to me where I'm just like, well, what did it all mean? Yeah. And I've said this about, I think when we covered Eraserhead that the first time we saw Eraserhead, there was no part of me that felt I needed to figure it out. I just like experienced it. Mm Mm-hmm. Then there's some movies where I'm just like, well, but what what was it all representing? And and I felt that way at the end of this movie where I'm like, well, what was going on with this character and and this character and that? And and then the more I'm just like, I don't think Andrew Haig wants me to figure it out. I don't think there is a figuring it out. Mm-hmm. I think there's a it was real in whatever capacity you understand that and let that be. Yeah. And the more I allow that to be the truth the more i like the movie yeah i which i already really liked yeah like i'm already in the in i'm in the same spot as you where i have to start letting go of these expectations and 
trying to search for the deeper meaning of things and just like let it sit with me and like let it linger. I'm really jealous of our buddy Lexi, who was also at the same screening that we were at. Who didn't really know anything about it. Who didn't it. know anything <laughs> going in, wasn't as highly anticipating it as... I mean, I as, think she was excited because she likes Paul Meskel. Yeah. But, but that was about it. But like she gave it five. Yeah. And I think that that 100% could have been us. Well, if, I've had a couple folks who like live in our city and I don't know personally, but we follow each other on Letterboxd to be like, Oh, I hadn't heard of this movie, but based on what you said, I'm going to go see it. And then they gave it a five. Yeah. But I ha- we had a, a, a mutual follower who I, again, I don't know who wrote on their review that they also most highly anticipated movie of the year, expected to love it and then felt a little like, Oh, so it seemed like again, too high of expectations on it. And then in speaking with him, he kind of said like, the longer I sit with it, the more I like it. I just had such high expectations of it. Mm-hmm. I have to say, though, there are um, so many moments in this movie that did just sucker punch my heart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so many line readings, so much dialogue. And and I just want to share um, something that Andrew Haig said about this movie that I think is really beautiful. First of all, he shot this in his childhood home, which is like Big. so deeply personal. Yeah. Um, And this is something he said about the movie. So he said, quote, I wanted to pick away at my own past as Adam does in the film. I was interested in exploring the complexities of both familial and romantic love, but also the distinct experience of a specific generation of gay people growing up in the 80s. I wanted to move away from the traditional ghost story of the novel and find something more psychological, almost metaphysical. That's beautiful. And I I love that. I love that thoughtfulness. I love that self-reflection and the the challenging of that, because you're right. I, I mean, I had a therapy session earlier this week where it just came up this deep seated feeling that when I think of a certain memory, it shoots me right back to being a kid, makes me feel like a kid. And then my therapist is like, if you could express like how you were feeling, like what would you have said in that moment now, now having the adult brain that you have? And it's like, fuck, I that, that's a tough thing to like. That's literally what this movie is exploring. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And it just is a testament to what you said about this feeling like a very therapeutic movie in that sense. I want to also talk about that. Like, I think that this is, this is one of my favorite Paul Mescal performances. Oh my goodness. And you keep saying his like first, first hello in the voice he does it in. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) It's pretty. Oh my goodness. Can we just like talk about how, beautiful but like deeply sexy the like sex scenes are like Mm -hmm. i mean and we knew this from looking Mm -hmm. and from weekend that like andrew haig has an ability to craft a very like realistic and beautiful but also sexy intimate scene um and yeah this does not disappoint in that regard Mm -hmm. with these two beautiful beautiful men who like they've talked repeatedly in interviews about how oh we didn't need a chemistry read yeah, we see that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the character of Harry and the way that he interacts with Adam, there's just, like you said, there's some lines that I think are just so beautiful, but it is a very beautiful relationship that develops develops between the two of them. And I think that what Harry brings to the table is very simply and un- unintrusively getting Adam to kind of think about things in a new way and to approach approach his thoughts and approach his actions in a way he hadn't bit, bit, ever thought about or hadn't thought about recently. 
and also just brings a lot of lightness and warmth to the film. Yeah. Yeah. That like kind of concurrent. And I mean, Andrew Haig said that this concurrent look at like the complexity of family love as we're shooting into this like romantic love. It's very, I think, especially if you're in your thirties, <laughs> mm-hmm. very relatable. Um, Edgar Wright loved this movie. My guy. Nice. And this is what he had to say about it. He said, quote, I am in awe of what Andrew managed to do in this film. It's a true testament to his artistry that he was able to make a film so personal, emotional and resonant, yet also so satisfying within its place in a genre. Though a traditional ghost story might end on a note of sadness or shock, the fact that Andrew's able to leave us with a moment of infinite beauty is to be cherished. Yeah. God damn it. All the directors and filmmakers coming in with real nice shit. All these UK, UK people being like, Lovely thing to say. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to seeing this movie again without that weight of expectation on it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Like I want to, I want to give it another watch. I want to watch it at home. I want to watch it with subtitles without the expectations and the pressure. And I just want to let it completely consume me because this, even though we've expressed some complicated feelings about it, this is one of my favorite movies of 2023. Uh, I I truly loved it. And I think I'll love it even more the more that it sits with me and I carry it with me and continue to talk and read about it. Agreed. How does All of Us Strangers make you feel? Consumed by its emotion, magnetic beauty, and magical realism. How does it make you feel? Makes me feel moved to tears by the beauty <laughs> and the sorrow. Yes, beautifully put. All right, let's shift to talking about dads. Dads of the week. Who is your bad dad? Corella DeVille. Same, same. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she is super selfish, nefarious, and like, in a sense, bratty. Uh, it's in her name, but she's cruel, ill-intentioned, harmful. She's also really abusive. Uh, a dad? No, thank you. If three things to add. Capitalistic, <laughs> terrible driver, not even fashionable. Yeah. Like you want to kill those Dalmatians and you don't even have good fashion. I also think that like a Dalmatian coat wouldn't be that great. Yeah, she sucks. So Corella DeVille, don't, don't be, be our dad. dad. Who's your rat dad? I picked Nellie, Gabby so Hoffman's character I. from Obvious Child. Nice. Um, that is funny. We aren't always on the exact same page, but this time we are. So Nellie is just so empathetic mm-hmm. and gentle and caring, but also honest. Like she still mm-hmm. like lets Donna know what she's feeling. She's got her back, but also like is there to help like make sure that Donna is thinking about things outside of what she's immediately feeling and she's a really good listener. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of the same, same stuff as you there. Um, I think that there's this just really beautiful moment where she asks, like she asked Donna, just like, do you want to talk about this thing? Donna says no. And she's like, okay. Yeah. That's that encapsulates the rad dadness of her. I think. Yeah. Like she's not overbearing and she doesn't impose her own views, but ask Donna questions when Donna is stuck or trying to make a decision to not, she's not telling her what to do, but ask her questions that lead her down a path to maybe think about 
help her think about or reframe what she wants to do. And just so beautiful. I would love to be their roommate. It seems like that loft would just be a romp. Yeah. And also a, but a supportive romp. Yeah. A little like womb. Womb. Yeah. Party womb. <laughs> so Nellie. Be, be our, our dad. dad. I, daddy. It, it's a double daddy week. Oh, I only picked one, but I, I'm happy to pick the two. Yeah. Uh, Adam and Harry from all of us. Yeah. Week. I picked Adam because I was like, don't want to be so obvious, <laughs> you know. Well, I have a bookmark that you got me for my birthday with just pictures of, of uh, not Andrew Scott, <laughs> but pictures of Paul Mescal and a heart on the back. Yeah, it's like a it's like a phone uh, or not a phone, a photo booth strip of <laughs> photos of him. We should put a picture of it because it's pretty awesome. And you got me a shirt with just a bunch of photos of him that says Paul Mescal. We should take a picture of that too. Yeah, we'll we'll do a little. That's good. That's so. That's so good. yeah, obviously, I think he's wheat woot, but. Andrew Scott is also big time weed food, big time weed food. And the two of them together, stop the lights, stop the lights it's too much. <laughs> it's too beautiful. It's too intimate. It's too amazing. Both on screen and off screen. These two men are daddy, daddy, daddy. Um, also, speaking of stop the lights. I don't think we've linked to it before, but this is the perfect week to do it. We're going to we can link to an amazing uh, YouTube video with Andrew Scott and Paul Meskel. And let me tell you, stop the lights. All right, Adam and Harry. Stop the lights. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait. Okay, for a rad wreck this week, it's in the spirit of exactly what we were just talking about. Support your partner's crushes. <laughs> so, as Kylie just mentioned, for um, was it your birthday? I got you the Paul Meskel photo booth strip uh bookmark and i got you the paul mescal t-shirt i i feel like as and i feel like as time has gone on and crushes have changed and evolved we've we've always kind of acknowledged them and supported them and been happy for each other in our celebrity crush journeys yeah yeah so do that for the important people in your life, whether it's an SO or otherwise. Let them have their boyfriends. Let them have their girlfriends. Let them have their their day bays. Get your crush on. Get your crush on. Support other people's crushes. Wheat woot. Wheat woot. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life. Drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever the heck you listen from. That's going to do it for these obvious children this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads have to be bad. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.